Hi everyone, you are listening to LD Spotlight, a podcast about learning and development brought to you by Nifty Learning. I'm your host, Liz Stefan, and together we're here to learn about LD. Welcome to another episode of LD Spotlight. I have with me today a very, very special guest, Dr. Clark Quinn. Thank you so much for being here with us. Dr. Clark Quinn is an internationally known consultant, speaker, and author of seven books. In 2012, Dr. Quinn was recognized as the Learning Guild's first guild master. He thinks out loud at learnlets.com, tweets as at Quinnovator, and works on behalf of clients through Quinnovation. Thank you so much for being with us today. A pleasure to be here. I want to focus our conversation on three main things. One of them is what does it mean to be a learning professional? What it should be? Then the difficult question of how can LNDs actually improve their perceived value? And I will want us to talk a little bit about this fallacy of us being logical creatures when in fact we are not and why this keeps creating that consequences. So I'm hoping that this will be a hard hitting, sometimes painful conversation about why LND isn't better, which is actually a post that you wrote on the 3rd of May. You can find this on learnnets.com. You can also find it on Dr. Quinn's LinkedIn profile. I just want to read the outline of that article. You will list out a series of possible reasons why L&D hasn't progressed much over time. So one of them is the false assumption that presenting information is enough to produce behavior change. That's false, obviously. There's an expectation that if SMEs are excellent at what they do, they're experts in their field, that they're also great teachers. They are not. The skill set of doing the job and the skill set of teaching the job are completely different. L&D is also measuring the wrong things or it doesn't understand what is relevant to measure. I know that there are still companies who are incredibly excited about hours spent in e-learning and attendance to live courses, which is painful to hear. You also mentioned the fact that churning out massive amounts of e-learning content does not equate to any impact in knowledge acquisition and retention. Just because you have a lot of fancy PDFs and courses doesn't mean that they are useful in any way. And another thing that I would like us to dig a bit deeper into is the stakeholders in the organization don't fully understand the role of L&D. Therefore, they might not even care what L&D could bring to the table. This is, in my opinion, a very painful x-ray of the industry, a very accurate one, unfortunately. And your conclusion is the following. In short, we don't seem to know what learning is, and we are blind to the fact that our approaches aren't useful. These, of course, are all premises I've addressed in my call to revolutionize L&D. I still think there's a meaningful role for L&D to play, but we have to lift our game. That's my explanation of why L&D isn't better. What's yours? I fully agree, and I see it every day in my outreach to other L&D professionals. Where do we start to make L&D better? How do we choose which battles to fight and how do we make any sort of significant long-standing progress as an industry? How do we explain to our stakeholders who don't speak L&D, quote-unquote, that this is a long-term process and you can't expect overnight results? Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience today. We have allowed ourselves to get into a position where what we do is respond to requests for courses. There's lots of history behind this. It includes the fact that we took the best performer and said, okay, you're good at the task, whatever it's sales or operations, let's make you a trainer. Now, we didn't prepare them to be trainers. We thought that if they're the best person, they could articulate it. A couple of problems with that. Not everybody who's good at it is good at teaching it, doesn't understand the underlying thinking. Most of our expertise is compiled away. 
that's the nature of how our brains work. And so you can't just take this person and expect him to be a good trainer. And then, particularly after 2001, when nobody wanted to fly, we decided we would take all those trainers and turn them into e-learning instructions. Oh, just take your course and put it online, right? So there's a couple problems underneath that. One of those is we don't really understand how our brains work and how we learn. That notion that our expertise is compiled away, if we're not aware of that, we're going to struggle to work appropriately with subject matter experts. We're going to think we can just ask them what needs to be in the course and they will give us what needs to be in the course and we'll put it in. And we do. We do that. But the problem is research shows that 70% of what experts do isn't consciously accessible to them. They literally can't tell you what they do, but they can tell you what they know. So we get these information dump courses. And then we have this belief that we are formal logical reasoning beings, that if we're given information, oh, we will recognize that we need to change our behaviors and we will start with new behavior change. It turns out we don't work like that. Even if we consciously acknowledge we should do it differently, we struggle to do it and we will backslide into our old ways of doing it without a lot of help and support. And we really need practice on doing it the new ways because there's this myth that we can unlearn things. and We don't. We have to learn over the old traces. We have to train again and again until the new traces are stronger than the old traces and will now take over our behavior. So there's a lot of reasons why, and we built tools that made it easy to take expert knowledge dump and put it online and add a quiz. So there's this whole trajectory we've been in, and at the end of the day, we've really lost credibility. People know they need to have learning, so they throw money at it. They don't know what learning is. So as long as it looks like school, that's good enough. And they just ask for courses and have an implicit belief that that will solve the problem. All these are just aren't true. <laughs> but if you don't understand learning, you can't provide even a rationale about why you should change, let alone know yourself how you should change. So you ask, what do we need to do? I argue there's a couple things we can do, but the first thing we need to do is understand how we learn, have that basis, just as you would expect a plumber to understand the basics of flow and pipes and a doctor to understand the mechanisms of physiology and biochemistry. We should understand learning. If and when we do that, we have a basis to start changing how we interact with others, how we work with others to get learning to happen, how we defend ourselves, and how we make arguments about what needs to happen. That's a start. So I'm an L&D professional. I'm in sort of muddy waters. I'm in a company that has some sort of training structure in place. There's a tool, there's a department. We do trainings, we do e-learnings, we have quizzes and whatnot. And I guess a lot of it is out of inertia. Other companies have been doing it like this. We will set it up like this. We're going to deliver training. Finally, we're doing blended because a while ago we were only doing face-to-face -face and so on. But the problem here is that if I'm hearing you right, the L&D professional must first deeply, deeply understand the nature of human's acquisition of knowledge, how that happens, in order to accept that behavior change is something that takes a very long time. It's almost like it's so much easier to just send people to a training session or give them a course, get the five-star review or that beautiful NPS that says, oh, the trainer was amazing. I highly recommend this session. 
it's an immediate sort of response. Yes, my course, my initiative was amazing because look at this really wonderful feedback that I got. And then it stops there. But the actual retention of knowledge, the way people apply the concepts is probably not happening or happening to such a small extent that that training was just a waste of time for everybody. I guess the first exercise that L&D people should do is look inside and understand the purpose of their job and then consider advocating and explaining it to other people. Self-development is the first and foremost thing that L&D people could do, right? That's correct. Okay, let's say I've done this. I deeply understand how people acquire knowledge, but my context still remains the same. I've grown, but my context has stayed behind. Since people are not logical creatures and we don't react to information, the L&D professional can't go to the organization, tell them, guys, humans adopt new behaviors like this. It's going to take a lot of time for any significant change to be seen. Therefore, you should change your attitude towards my function, right? My L&D role. Since that doesn't happen, how does L&D speak to the organization and convey this in such a persuasive manner that the organization actually responds and absorbs that information? I think there's several tangents, and I'm a big believer in sort of a kitchen sink approach, which says, let's throw, let's do all the things we can and see which ones work in our context, because different people react to different sorts of persuasion. So one of the things to do is start internally practicing some of these practices, own them, demonstrate them. So I argue that one of the things L&D needs to do is start internally using mechanisms like working out loud and sharing mistakes and learning from a creating a culture of learning because they have to own that. I do believe that L&D has to go beyond the course to the longer picture of learning, which includes coaching and stretch assignments, and they have to practice that internally. A second thing to do is to make the case. And one of the things you can do is actually flip the design of the learning right away. So even though you're doing a course on X, Instead of presenting a bunch of information about X, switch it so that what you have your learners doing are doing a bunch of tasks applying the knowledge to problems, graded problems, possibly in groups. So they're still coming into the room, but they're doing different things. Generally, if this is done well, learners prefer it. They much prefer solving problems in groups to listening to a bunch of droning bullet points. You're going to have a bigger impact that way. You won't be able to accomplish as much because, you know, the notion is if I present a whole bunch of information, in a whole day workshop, people are going to go away and be able to apply all that, which is just a myth, by the way. But we don't. So switch it and just get some marginal change in what they actually are able to do. They'll still rate it highly. But the second thing we do is not measure. We measure, like you said, oh, I got five stars on the rating. The problem is the correlation between novices rating of the value of a learning experience and its actual impact is about zero. It's 0.09, which is zero with a rounding error. So just to ask him what people think, what you're supposed to do is start with a problem and say, wow, will we know when it's fixed? What data will tell us that we've now solved the problem? And then you design your course to make that change, and then you go see if it's doing it. But we tend to measure efficiency. How many people are we serving per every staff member? How much time does it cost us to build a course? Without knowing, does that course do any good? When we help staff, does that lead to any change in a business metric? So another strategy besides actually just changing the course and trying to make it better and, you know, from the outside perception, they're still going, they're coming back from a course. 
but they're actually doing things in that course. They generally prefer it better, so you're going to get good ratings, but also it actually leads to more change. But then the second thing to do is to find an eager adopter, somebody who's willing to hear this and says, yes, I'm absolutely willing to work with you to try and make a course that makes a change. So let's go in and find out what is the real problem. Of course, if it's not a skills or knowledge problem, a course isn't going to help, but you try and find one. You say, how do you know a course is needed? What is the current level of performance and what should it be so that you know you need a course to address it? What is the specific cause that we're going? So you have the conversation. You can't do that with everybody up front, typically, because unless you're coming in in a new company and they're just establishing L&D, you're going to have trouble doing that. But you should be able to find an eager adopter and you do it with that course. You go in, you find it, you develop a real meaningful solution, and then you get the results and you show that this different approach actually led to a meaningful move in the business. And you come back and you start managing up and going to your boss and their boss and to the executives. This time we've learned a bit more and now we're actually moving a business needle. I welcome you to ask me to start demonstrating the value of your investment instead of just believing it's true. Let's validate it. Let's make sure. It's a tough conversation. You've got to start talking outside your silo. You've got to start talking with the business owners. But ultimately, that's the way business works. So knowing it, putting it in place, trying it out, finding eager adopters, evangelizing. You know, when people come in to say, just do that thing you do. You remember school? Remember how effective that was? Because if they think back, they'll realize school wasn't particularly effective. Ask them to think about a hobby that they have or sport or craft or something and say, how did you learn that? How much did you spend in a course learning? How much did you learn by doing it and having feedback from others? How much did you learn by practicing? How much did you learn by reading and looking up on your own instead of actually taking a course I kind of feel like we keep going back to this thing that we are not logical creatures, because now that you mention it, I precisely remember every single instance of how I learned my hobbies or how or why I failed when I started practicing them. And now that you're telling me this, I realize that the learning experience itself, for it to be very sticky, it needs to be very strongly connected to some sort of emotion or it needs to have an emotional component. And that means that when you're doing your class on whatever or your learning activity, there has to be an emotion associated with that. The, I don't know, awkwardness of interacting with a new person, the struggle when you ask yourself of a question or when the facilitator asks a question, you're trying to come up with a response, the effort of thinking about the solution or working together as a group to solve a problem, this kind of thing. So the learning experience itself needs to be designed to include something that will spark an emotion to increase its retention, right? Absolutely. So we've been looking at learning for roughly, you know, for over 100 years scientifically, but it's really only in the past couple of decades we've really started recognizing the value of emotion and learning. But we're now finding out that an emotional connection to the learning experience greatly increases as you use the word stickiness. And we don't do a good job of that. One of the reasons I like the move from thinking about instructional design to learning experience design is I believe it brings in that emotion. There's only been one instructional design theorist, really, John Keller, who had his ARCS model, who talked about emotion in the learning experience at all. And he's acknowledged, and yet it hasn't necessarily percolated into the learning experience. And we do a lot of trivial stuff for engagement. Click to see more or add gratuitous pictures. And these things actually interfere with learning. But if we find out the intrinsic value of why this is important, if we actually make it meaningful to the learner, I believe you need to 
hook them in emotionally before you even try and hook them in cognitively. And they're inextricably linked, really. But you hook them in and get them to go, you know, I do need this. And then you maintain that level of challenge and make the context of the problem such that they're committed to solving them. You're going to have a much more powerful learning outcome than if you just go, okay, here's the information. Here's a chance to practice it, which is what we do. We, again, back to this belief that we're formological beings. And if we just present logical information, it will all wonder stick. No, people have to care. Yeah, I guess that also touches on another thing I fear, and I don't have a, an idea on how this could be solved, which is I kind of feel that a lot of the information that companies are trying to teach their employees is kind of dry. I mean, we're talking procedures, processes, whatever. It's kind of hard to tell a story about this compliance, whatever context, where you have to apply procedure 5.7 as opposed to procedure 7.3. And management just wants the people to apply the damn procedure, the correct one, and to decrease the customer service error rate. And I fear that this is kind of a difficult conversation to have. You go to the C-level team and you tell them, yeah, but we need to help people connect emotionally to procedure 7.3. And, you know, they're going to react something along the lines of, I don't care, just get it done. And then you enter this whole conversation of, but they didn't get why I'm trying to argue the case for behavior change through emotional involvement in the learning experience. And how does this conundrum get solved? Because I, I personally don't know. <laughs> This is exactly the point that my most recent book is called Make It Meaningful. And it's all about how do we do that? And I believe we can reliably, repeatedly do this. They don't have to care that we're building in enthusiasm about procedure 7.3 as long as we're doing it. We have to tell them, you're your expert in managing the company. I'm the expert in making learning meaningful. Let me do my job. Then you got to go below that level to find out who designed Procedure 7.3 and why did they design it that way? Because I will bet you there's a reason they chose that over some other way. If you go into the experts, and this is one of my hints and tricks I learned a long time ago with a experience with computer auditing. Somebody came to me and said, you do games. You know, we're doing a game. Would you help? I said, sure. What's it about? They said computer auditing. And, you know, my eyes rolled back in my head, you know, and he said, that's what I thought too. But then I talked to the people doing it and they said, it's like playing detective and you work backwards. And most of the times it's just an error, but every once in a while it's deliberate. And I knew right there we had a game because somebody deliberately messing with numbers is a really interesting story. And you could bake the experience around that. But the point is, the expert who designed Procedure 7.3 has spent enough time, they were interested enough in this topic to become an expert in it. Why? What is it about that topic that makes them so interested? And why was it so important that Procedure 7.3 was written? There's a reason why it had to be put in place. It's important. You need to find the reason why and make that manifest. You have to help people feel it viscerally and go, oh, goodness, yeah, you know, this is important for me to learn. And so it may take a little extra work, but it's going to manifest in learners caring so much more about it and it's sticking better and you're going to get better alignment to procedure 7.3 and better execution against it. And management doesn't have to care. All they care is that people do 7.3. Your job is to find why and help learners understand so they go, oh, I guess I should. And I guess that this could be helped by adding a couple of storytelling components to the learning experience, meaning why was this procedure created? What was the business case that generated the need for this procedure? What could have gone wrong? 
Well, that's a big one to me of consequences. So I think, yes, we know that activating relevant knowledge and such leads to better learning outcomes, but I think you need to open them up emotionally too. So your introduction should help convey some of that with them, what's in it for me. And then, yes, your examples should be compelling stories of wins or losses. You either successfully applied the concept or you unsuccessfully applied it and you have these consequences. And then the practice situations, and there should be a lot more practice than we currently have. We tend to have 80% of content and 20% of practice, we should reverse that. But then the practice context, instead of working on a patient, you should be working on the ambassador's daughter. Instead of closing a sale, you should be closing the sale that's going to save the company. You know, I'm exaggerating a wee bit for emphasis, but the point is find those compelling stories, put them in a context, make them make those decisions, use that knowledge and have that have consequences or play out before you even say right or wrong. Let them see the consequences. Oh, I just really hurt the company. Oh, I just really helped the company. I saved us from being investigated by an ethics committee, whatever it is. And yes, it's storytelling. Absolutely. There are stories wrapped around the practice. There are stories wrapped around the examples. The introductions have motivating examples that are little mini stories. Yes. I have a tiny little catch here or asterisk. In order for a learning experience to effectively touch on what's in it for me and engage the participant in such a way that they feel invested and it's relatable and it makes sense and it just makes them absorb the information. I guess that there is a company culture context that has to be right for the person to even begin to care, to even begin to listen to the learning story that is being told, correct? Because you can't do this in an environment that's not psychologically safe or based on trust. I strongly believe that the outcomes are much better when you do have a good learning culture where it's safe. There's also accountability. So you're in that performance zone. And I do believe it helps the learners care. But I believe if you're doing your job right, they will even get that that's important if they care at all about what the company's about. I do believe in self-determination theory, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And one of the relatedness elements that Dan Pink sort of made a major focus in his book, Drive, was purpose. What is the purpose of the organization? It starts with my purpose. What does my purpose contribute to the unit? What does the unit contribute to the organization? What does the organization contribute to society? Those should be in alignment. You'll get the best outcomes. But if people don't care about being professional about their jobs, yes, you've got a different problem than this course is going to (laughs) solve. But in general, I think you can make almost any learning meaningful, even if the rest of the context mitigates against it. It's just going to be less effective than it would be if you also had everything else in alignment. Mm -hmm. The reason I was uh, bringing this to the table is I've personally seen and I've heard lots and lots of horror stories where the employee is, you know, FTE, full-time equivalent. If they don't have an identity, it doesn't matter who they are or how they execute the job. It's just that they're a number in an Excel of numbers. And it's very strongly reflected in the everyday experience at work. Therefore, learning isn't even close to top 10 things that I should be doing at work right now. One of them is I just want to keep my job or survival or navigating the day without getting smacked for doing something wrong. It can be very (laughs) difficult to care in this kind of an environment. Well, absolutely. And I do believe strongly that L&D should have a role to play in creating the learning culture. I have this cheeky statement that learning isn't doing near what it could and should. And what it is doing, it's doing badly. Other than that, it's fine. So what it is doing, it's doing badly is about making knowledge dump courses instead of meaningful 
painful practice courses, but not doing near what it could and should goes into that role, goes into performance support, goes into informal learning, goes into learning culture. That's not a problem a course can solve. That is a much bigger issue. That's an organization-wide issue. And if you're struggling to create meaningful courses in that culture, yeah, you've got a problem, but your problem is not your courses. It's something bigger. And if I believe L&D has an argument that that change should happen for the benefit of the organization because things are happening increasingly fast. Even in industries that seem like they're immune to change, there's revolutions coming and the ability to execute on the things you know you need to do, which is what L&D has largely been about, is only going to be the cost of entry, I believe. And what companies are going to need to do is continually innovate. And that comes from a culture where people aren't just a full-time equivalent, a number. They have to have a purpose. They have to know why they're there. They have to be given the autonomy of here's your accomplishment and then support to achieve it. And here's why it's important. And here's why we care about helping you. All that stuff. I do believe that has to happen. I think L&D has a plausible case to make that they should be the ones to do that for two reasons. On principle, who's supposed to know more about how we learn? And this is really a learning issue. And pragmatically, it suddenly moves L&D to a much more relevant position in the success of the organization. I believe that's an important strategic move. That was the whole point of an earlier book, Revolutionized Learning and Development. I think that these are things L&D could and should be pushing for. It makes us more relevant. It makes us more meaningful to ourselves as well as to the organization. But that's a very different thing than just solving how to make bigger, better course. So I separate them into two things. I think they're both important. I think that argument that L&D should start internally practicing on experimenting and working out loud and learning from learning and building in the ability to make mistakes and making it safe to fail, as you pointed out, all those things L&D needs to own so they then can take it with credibility to the rest of the organization because they've been walking the walk. But that's a much bigger step than just measuring the outcome of our courses and trying to just improve them. Both are important, somewhat very separate and different things. Obviously, as you point out, they're linked at the wrists and ankles. And yes, if you don't have that right, it's going to interfere with the success just your course redesign might have. Is it the job of L&D to go to management and tell them, guys, you're setting this up all wrong for learning to even happen? Is it the job of L&D to point that out? Yes, and. It should be L&D's job. They should be the experts in learning, and they should point out if the company is mitigated against a successful learning. However, there may be some subtleties. I mean, you know, do you care about innovation? Is our organization going to survive if we can't continue to learn? Well, speaking from my expertise in learning and not in organizational dynamics, but there is research that shows this is better for organizational success. Maybe we could try an experiment and see if we might get better innovation. You know, take it as... Don't come out and go, you're stupid. People resent that. They defend against it. They resist it. But if you, you know, we're doing so much well, but here's a few things we could tune. Let's just do an experiment and try and make it accessible and digestible that they make this change. So be diplomatic about the way you convey the message to management that maybe a couple of things need to change. Yes, there may be management that actually do respond to being heat over the head. So you need to figure out what approach will work in your organization. In general, being diplomatic does tend to be more successful, but whatever works. And that's partly what I was saying. Try different things, see what works, but continue to have that consistent message. Be ready to present. And when you make the arguments, have data, have anecdotes, ask them to reflect on their own experience, use every tool in the toolkit and be prepared to have those conversations to adapt on the fly to what sort of evidence they seem to be responding to and follow up with that. Nobody said this is easy. It's just important. 
Yeah, yeah, fair point. On the topic of using the right data to support your argument, right? You're having this difficult, important, very, very serious conversation with management and you come with some supporting data. Where does that data come from? And I'll add a bit of meat to the question. You were telling me in our introduction call about that authoring tool that had performance built in to the point where it was less painful to pull teeth than to go through that kind of a learning experience. How do you build in measurement in this learning experience that is very, you know, emotion driven and it tells a story and it makes you practice the concept, not just dry learning it from reading it off paper? What kind of things do you measure so that you're not overbearing the learning process with measurement to the point where you make it ineffective? See, remember when I said you had to get outside the silo? The data you use to make this argument doesn't come from within L&D. You go out with that adopter and they say, we need a course on sales process. Well, what is the gap in the sales process? Oh, we're not closing enough deals. Okay, what's your closure rate now and what should the closure rate be? And why that gap? What is the cause of that gap? And eventually you drill down, you find something, you say, now, if it's something that L&D can address, L&D can address a knowledge and skills gap. It can't address an incentive gap. If they've got the wrong rewards for behavior, you can't fix that. But once you identify something that L&D can address, the data is what the sales closure rate used to be. And after your course, what is your sales closure rate? It's not your data. It's the sales data. That's why you've got to break out of your silo because you're helping them fix their problems. You need their data about their problems and about the fix of their problems. But that's only one source. So that's the data from the courses. And you will use internal data on the courses to fix the courses until they fix the problem. But once the problem's fixed, the evidence that problem fixes the business unit's data. But you can also have other data. You can have data from experiments that show that this approach is better than that approach. You can have anecdotes from other industries that succeed. You look in books, like if you're talking about the value of social media, you look to Bingham and Connor's book on social learning and you find stories. So you wanna have all of this sort of data. You wanna have anecdotes. You wanna have empirical data from within the organization. You wanna have empirical data from outside the organization, other organizations that talk at conferences about their successes and how they measured success. And you look at academic research. There's all sorts of sources of converging data. And that converging story to me is arguably your biggest hammer to go out and hit them over the head with. (laughs) Because amongst all of those, one of them alone might resonate with them. But then having that triangulation, all the data points to this, guys, you have a story there, I think. So it's absolutely unavoidable for L&D to, I guess, elevate itself. Absolutely unavoidable. At least this is what I hope I'm understanding correctly. You need to understand the context of where your organization sits, what kind of problems it has, how it relates to the outside world, and what are the things that can influence its betterment, the organization's growth, advancement, progress, etc., increase in sales or whatever kind of metric we want to look at. And once you understand that and you understand where to go to find the right kind of indicators of progress, then you build back from those all the way to the learning experience itself, to the learning intervention. Am I reading this right? 
Yes, and nobody says L&D has to change. L&D can continue to make courses on demand, measure themselves by how much it costs per course and that it's no worse than the industry average and feel like they're doing their job. But eventually, I believe that some CFO is going to come in and say, we're spending all this money. Outside research says only 10% of L&D spending is effective. And at that point, you're suddenly going to scramble. I would suggest that the better approach is to be proactive rather than reactive. Lift your game because it's your job responsibility. It's harder. Yes, right now we're a faith-based industry. If we build it, it is good. And I use this flipply and I know it's irreverent. And we have no basis for that. We really don't have a reason to believe that. We don't have data that suggests we're at right, except smile sheets, which turns out not to be a good basis back to the 0 0.09 with a rounding arrow. So we have managed to continue in this mode for decades. There's no reason in some organizations that can continue. I think the more advanced your organization or your industry is, the sooner there's going to be questions and pressure about, wait, how are you keeping this company ahead of the game on learning? How can you demonstrate you're doing more than just making courses on demand and how can you demonstrate that's having an impact? And your competitors, to the extent that they get on that before you do, your company is toast if you don't adapt. Do you feel that the pandemic and the great resignation and a lot of companies' sudden acknowledgement that people are the core of whatever it is that they're doing, do you feel that this has been an earthquake strong enough to reset the industry, to point out that it's a, it's a faith-based industry? I wish. I don't have a lot of faith in that. There was a lot of panic and they took all their face-to-face -face courses, threw them online because they had to. They didn't necessarily change anything in doing it. Industries found that they could trust remote workers. Yet now that the pandemic's waning with slight hiccups, companies are going back and requiring people to go back in the office without any evidence. It's just a emotional reaction to a loss of control, a perceived loss of control. There is an opportunity, it's an inflection point, but I think we're going to see a lot of companies sort of avoid learning the lessons from this opportunity. The fact that our industry has remained stagnant for decades doesn't inspire a lot of hope in me. I hope we can use this. I do see evidence that there's a growing interest in learning science. There are more and more books about it, and I think that's a good thing. How long it takes that to percolate into practice, I'm not sure the pandemic was quite the earthquake we needed. I think it may have accelerated things, though, and I think that's a good outcome. To be honest, I was secretly hoping that you would say a resounding yes. I, I would love to. I wish I could. I hope at least that this conversation and your books and the research that you and all these wonderful minds in L&D are doing right now, that they're shaking things up and helping people open their eyes to accepting some painful truths. Indeed, this one about, I, I really wish we were logical creatures. It would make things so much easier and it would speed up processes that seem to take decades. Well, there's some benefit to being emotional creatures, too. I think we might not have succeeded if we didn't have emotional attachments to love and children and things. So there's, you know, there are logical reasons for that. Logical self-interest would have prevented us from doing some of the pro-society actions that have saved humanity over time. So I think there's benefits to that. There are times I wish we were more logical. Yes. I was kind of expecting that you would give me the five-step recipe of how to turn this over. And if you don't 
don't have it, then none of us have it. And that's honestly kind of scary because that means years upon years in the future to kind of keep doing the same bad things over and over again. And I don't understand why we so easily fall back into the pattern. Well, there's a bunch of mitigating circumstances. There's the pressure of the tools that say, oh, you can take a PowerPoint and a PDF and put it online and add a quiz and you've got e-learning. There's the pressure of expectations. Well, with those tools, you can turn around a course in two weeks, so it should only take you two weeks to make a course. There's the pressure of if it looks like school, it must be learning. So as long as that's happening, I don't have to care what you're doing. And There's fear and the difficulty of speaking business and getting outside the silo. There's a lot of stuff that makes it hard to change. So I understand it. And I do believe that there's two steps and none of them are guaranteed, but the one is start measuring your actual impact, as I mentioned. And the other one is start practicing internally that better learning, creating a learning culture in L&D first. I think those two steps are the important ones that we do need to instantiate. Then having the conversations with other people, collect all those different forms of data, the anecdotes, your internal data, external data, and academic research have that to hand. You're not going to know which one works with people. That's why you need all of them. When you get success with any one, then show it's buttressed by the others. So there is a different path for different organizations. When I ran my first learning and strategy workshop, after I ran it, I said, so what are you going to do next? And the first person got up and said, I'm going to improve my instructional design. The second person got up and said, I'm going to start focusing on performance. The third person got up, I need to focus more on our social media. And I was absolutely thrilled with that because what that was saying is for my circumstance, this is the right next step for me. And that's the situation. It depends on what's going right and wrong in your company, what your company does, what's going to give you the first big win. And so there isn't any one five-step process. It's here's all the steps, but the order of them for you may be different. And that's not a bad thing. It's more challenging, but it means there's opportunities almost everywhere. I can understand. I mean, it can seem very daunting. If you go to any random L&D professional right now and you tell them, you know, you need to look at this a bit kind of like a researcher and with a tiny sprinkle of entrepreneurship and challenging a little bit the ways you've been doing things. Forget about those vanity metrics because they're not actually helping you. I know it feels good, but you're not really making progress when you're measuring those. It can be difficult to accept that new reality as an L&D professional, especially if you are very set in your ways. Donald Taylor asked a question in the post. He said, how do you get started changing L&D? And one is you're in a new company that hasn't had L&D and they're just establishing it. And the other situations, you're coming and taking over an existing department. Very few people who are doing things the way they are are going to change. But when you bring in these new people, then you have the opportunity. He said, how do you get started? I was writing a column for a company and they challenged me. He said, you've written your evolutionized book. What should people do first? So one of my posts was exactly on that. Again, start with measurement, start with internally fixing your own culture. Then from there, you have more credibility to move forward. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. This was thoroughly, thoroughly exciting and a learning opportunity for me as well. So I really appreciate your time. I want to congratulate you on the launch of your book. 
So going to quinnovation.com, you'll find more about the book. Thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful. Learning is one of the big things that makes us human. And I guess it's just annoying that not everybody is understanding this and accepting it. Again, I do think there's positive moves. I think if we can shake people up and get them to take responsibility, we might accelerate this. And that's the hope. That's the reason to have conversations like this. Thank you for the opportunity. I wish you every success in your further research. Thank you. And same to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been another episode of LND Spotlight. If you'd like to get in touch and join the conversation, write to me at liz at niftylearning.io or connect with me on LinkedIn at Liz Stefan. Have a productive week, everyone.